Welcome to podcast with Cooper Cherry. Very excited today to have uh, David Griscom on the show, fellow Texan. I might know him from the uh, Michael Brooks show, the uh, Griscom Economic Minute. But uh, David, man, thanks so much for taking the time out of your Saturday to, to chat on the pod. Of course, man. Thanks for having me. I'm always excited to talk to fellow lefty Texans. Right? There's so few of us. <laughs> with the forgotten children, right? <laughs> yeah. But I'm kind of curious. I, I don't know a lot about your background. So you're mm-hmm. um, I, just from listening to the the show, Michael's show, uh, kind of get the feeling that you grew up in the, like the Houston area. Is that right? No, no. I'm from Austin. Oh, you are? Really? Yeah. Originally. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. I lived in Travis Heights. Um, okay. My family's still there. Oh, nice. Uh, I left for high school. I went, I went to, we moved to South Carolina for a few years. So I also went to high school in South Carolina. And then from there, I moved to Washington, D.C., where I went to college at American University. And oh, I've been, nice. I was in D.C. for around six, seven years, and now I'm in Brooklyn, New York. Nice. <laughs> so, okay, you left, you left Austin at like, what, 15, 14, somewhere in there? Yeah, yeah around middle school. Oh, uh, you know, it was, I mean, like I like South Carolina a lot, but it's definitely hard to, to leave Texas. And I've always been trying to find a way to get back since, but, yeah. uh, I'm able to keep some Texas spirit alive from abroad. So do you, uh, do you still have family here? In yeah, Austin, yeah pretty much my entire family's, uh, is still there. Um, I have a huge, you know, I have a lot of aunts and uncles all in the Texas area. Um, I grew up in the, the gay and lesbian community in Austin. My mother's straight, but my aunts are all, you know, really great lesbian women. And Austin has a really thriving and lovely uh, gay scene. So I sort of grew up in that community, which is a little bit different uh, Texas experience than most. But yeah. um, in a lot of ways, it is the any idea of like what the quintessential Texas experience is probably not going to be true either, right? Right. Yeah, I grew up on a cattle ranch, like an hour and a half southeast of Austin, and my parents were like, well, my dad especially is like, I don't know, I call him a Christian fascist, but they're like evangelicals. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so I have like all that baggage yeah. on me. And I know uh, that, yeah. yeah, so I got into, I went to school at Texas State in San Marcos and oh, awesome, uh, yeah. got my undergrad in English and sociology. And so through English, I was exposed to a lot of like Derrida, a lot of post-structuralist mm-hmm. thought and stuff. So that always had a very strong appeal to me. And then I kind of had like a little bit of a libertarian sort of mm-hmm. like that, that too seeped mm-hmm. in. And so that's, I think, kind of combining those streams is where I kind of find myself today as some type of an anarchist. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, those developments are always interesting. I was, uh, I was always very frustrated with the Democrats and the Democratic Party. It never really spoke to me, even though my family was, you know, pretty much, you know, liberal uh, Democrats for the most part. Um, so I actually had a really embarrassing period of time where I was a Republican in high school, and that was like my rebellion phase. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I got out of that pretty quickly, especially uh, when, when you know when I went up to to university. Um, it was right in the middle of Occupy, uh, so I got radicalized pretty quickly through that, and a lot of like left wing socialists and communist organizing in Washington D.C. Um, but it didn't take much because um, my my conservatism was pretty incoherent, and yeah. it didn't really take much for me to make the full flip into being a full-on socialist. Um, but I think, you know, you know, that's something that's always interesting to me, though, because I was attracted to, you know, the Republican Party, as goofy as it is to say, because as somebody who comes from a working-class background, they were the only ones who sort of presented themselves in that light, while a lot, of, especially liberal uh, politicians in the South, you know, really represent, like, the interests of doctors and lawyers, and I always felt that to be quite alien. Um, so I had a really stupid way to deal with that frustration by becoming a conservative. But I think it's really important 
um, you know, when we're talking about, you know, organizing, especially in places like the, the South, to recognize that, you know, a lot of people who are Republicans, right, or on the right, they're not really that committed to like the ideological underpinnings yeah. as much as it is sort of like, oh, this is the party of, you know, working people who get the shit done and take care of themselves and take care of their family, don't need anyone else's help. Yeah. So much of the community that I grew up in, I think a lot of it is, it's really like the religious evangelical mm -hmm. um, kind of small town thing that really, I think, drives a lot of it is like, it's social issues, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's funny too, my dad's like, oh, my dad to this day is pretty hardcore about, I mean, he thinks that like, you know, AOC and, and Bernie are like Maoist, basically. <laughs> it's really I wish, funny. You know? <laughs> yeah, seriously. So it's it's super funny now, especially like over the last, and I really hadn't gotten into much real like Marxism, real left stuff until over the last couple of years. Um, mm -hmm. I, you know, was more so like kind of didn't really pay attention to a lot of like this. I was more head in the clouds, sort of on that theory track mm -hmm. more than anything, but definitely like. And, you know, I don't know about you, but I'm kind of, I'm 36, so having lived through, like, the Iraq War, oh, yeah. and then 2008, and then Trump, it's like, fuck. <laughs> it's like, how much more of this can I take? Like, I at least have to do something. Yeah, I mean, there's been, like, the the events, that, especially in the past two decades, have really challenged a lot of people who might have, uh, you know, not really been paying attention. And it's been really exciting um, to see. I mean, I'm a little bit uh, younger than you, but... When I first became a socialist or, you know, a Marxist, I was very much alone, right? You know, I had a few good friends in college who shared my beliefs, but I never would have thought, for example, that, you know, just five years later, I'd be working in New York on a left-wing, you know, socialist podcast. It's really exciting to yeah. see how much growth that there's been in the past few years. How did you, uh, how did you get linked up with uh, Michael? Well, yeah, it's pretty funny. Um, uh, I had a professor at American University, Luke Mayville. Um, who's been on the podcast a few times, really wonderful person. He's been doing a lot of work in Idaho, uh, trying to expand uh, Medicaid uh, for low-income and poor people in that state. Anyway, um, I moved up to New York, because uh, once Trump got elected in D.C., I had I was working at a think tank kind of, uh, it was like an anti-fraud, like a corporate watchdog organization, which is fun, but they do a lot of bipartisan work as a lot of those organizations. Like uh, Chuck Grassley, Senator Chuck Grassley is a big booster of it because his whole thing is like, you know, I don't want anyone to take advantage of the, you know, the federal government or the monies that we're paying out. But anyways, uh, when I was working there, when uh, Trump got elected and we were, they were going to set up a meeting with Jeff Sessions. Oh, God. Right. <laughs> and I just sort of realized that I don't know if I can be a part of this anymore. So I packed my bags and moved up to, to New York and I got in contact with my uh, old professor, Luke Mayville, who then introduced me to Michael. And Michael and I had a good uh, conversation over beers, made fun of Sam Harris for a long time. And <laughs> nice. then I slow, slowly started, uh, you know, helping him out with the podcast until it sort of became what it is now for me. Nice. An interesting trajectory. What, uh, I mean, I guess you lived in DC for a while, but what do you feel like as kind of coming from the South or Texas, South mm -hmm. Carolina, like what, what's that transition like? Cause I love, I love the city. I love to visit. Mm -hmm. And I've thought about moving up, but I'm just like, I mean, I don't know if I can, if I could handle it, you know? Do you mean to New York or to D.C.? Uh, New York, yeah. No, D.C. No way. I can, no way yeah, I mean, so I mean, I, I really like um, being, being here in, in Brooklyn. I mean, it's really exciting. There's so much activity that's going on. And that's really why I decided to move up to New York, because you saw, for example, the huge growth in the DSA. And you've seen um, the results of all that organizing now, you know, with... Um, you know, Tiffany Caban winning, for example, the DA office this week, obviously AOC, Julia Salazar, 
you know, it's been really exciting to be a part of these like left socialist movements in, in New York. So for me, I had to come up here. Yeah. Um, I, you know, New York's an interesting place because there are people from all over. There's people who've been, you know, been here for generations and they oftentimes get uh, forgotten. But a lot of people too are just sort of discovering the city for themselves and making their own life. I like it a lot. It can be a little tough uh, to be uh, from Texas, especially. Um, and not being apologetic about it. Like, don't get me wrong. I understand that like, there's a lot of right-wing nonsense that goes on in Texas. But the last thing I think I need to hear um, is some person in New York just, you know, attacking this entire state of people. And it really erases, you know, the, you know, they might have, the Republicans might have control of the state government right now. But, you know, there's around 40, 45% of people who, who vote Democrat. There's really exciting organizing going on in Austin, Texas, for example. And I don't like there's an attitude sometimes that I do come up against here. Uh, where they just immediately want me to you know, say, well, where are you from, Texas? And they're waiting for me to apologize for it. <laughs> you know? yeah. And I'm definitely not going to do that. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, yeah, but it's a beautiful, it's a, really, it's a really beautiful place. The people here are lovely, and there's so many creative folks having, uh, you know, doing interesting work and having interesting conversations, too. That was one thing about D.C. is people always want to talk about politics as the game. But if you ever really want to have a serious pol political conversation about what you want to see happen, or they would stop talking to you because they realize you're not a serious person, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So here, you know, you can definitely have a little bit more in-depth and interesting uh, debates with people. You know, it's been really funny development for me over the last, I don't know, maybe six, eight months is I started shitposting on Twitter, like, mm -hmm. a lot. I mean, <laughs> maybe 50 to 100 posts a day. Um, and it's ironically, I've actually like made a lot of connections like across the world and across the, uh, even here in Austin, I've met up with mm -hmm. a couple of other, uh, you know, DSA people, anarchists, etc. So that's, that's been really cool. And then even like abroad, I, uh, had done an episode with a guy from, from Den, no, yeah, Denmark. We actually did an episode on the con. That oh, was pretty awesome. cool. Yeah. And he, uh, he does YouTube videos on sort of the theory realm too. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, the, the like the social aspect, you know, using social media has been really exciting because you can connect people from all over. I mean, yeah, same for me, too. It's like I, I miss home and I feel bad about not being participating, for example, you know, in person and all the stuff that's going on in Texas. But I get to talk. I've met so many people just through Twitter and online, you know, who are doing interesting organizing in Austin. So I'm able to sort of keep up with it and, you know, participate in it in some way. And that means a lot to me, too. It's very cool. So, um I do have to ask you, if you're sizing up Richard Wolf, like how big of how big a fella is that? Is he? Richard Wolf is a big guy. Is he? Um, there's no doubt about it. I will say though, the uh, the camera we use on uh, TMBS also doesn't show how big of a guy I am. So I think there's a little bit of a shock moment when we both looked at each other and realized it's like two two of the biggest guys in the studio. What what's the tail of the tape? Like what what are you coming in at? G give me some. Yeah, I mean, Richard Wolf is a hilarious guy, you know, comes in um, with a bunch of new Belgian beer, making a big, <laughs> big deal about it being, a, you know, uh, employee-owned beer. Fun guy, I mean, tough as hell. It's very funny because he, he plays along with the joke. Yeah, I think right? that's awesome that he does, too. But it's also funny because he doesn't understand the humor. <laughs> so he's like, why are people, you know, he's asking me, he's like, I don't understand why people are sending me pictures of your head getting chopped off of me, like holding it triumphantly <laughs> over my body. And I'm like, I don't know if I get it either, but, uh, you know, just go with it, brother. And uh, yeah, he's fun. I mean, Richard Wolf is an incredible guy. I couldn't imagine sort of being lost in the wilderness like he was for 30, yeah, 40 years right. being this radical Marxist professor. <laughs> Seriously. 
But uh, so yeah. you are primarily now doing, well, I think for a while there, uh, uh, Michael was calling you the, the head theoretician, but then you mm -hmm. started doing the economic minute. Yeah. I mean, you know, my background is in philosophy. Um, so, uh, and, uh, you know, for TMBS patrons, I do like philosophy reading groups and I sort of curate interesting texts from, uh, you know, primary historical texts. So that's sort of where that came from. And then, you know, I was talking with Michael just about how a lot of leftists don't want to talk about economics or really read papers like the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, because, yeah, it is like the, definitely the, the paper of the enemy. But they're also the ones who are doing the most detailed and important reporting. And it's something that we should we should definitely be paying attention to rather than ignoring because, you know, it's we don't necessarily have financial assets. But if these kind of things are going to affect our work and our life, we definitely shouldn't let all these people being able to have these conversations and debates and we're, us not participating in them at all. Yeah. I mean, I'm s super lucky to have the University of Texas here. I actually had James Galbraith on the podcast oh, awesome. a while back. Yeah, yeah I don't think like, he like that one totally kind of flew under the radar, but <laughs> that was a really interesting conversation for sure. Yeah, there's, I mean, Texas, University of Texas has a good hi history of like radical economists. You know, Yanis Varoufakis was teaching there for a while. Uh, I did not know that. Yeah, That's why. I always like to imagine like where he was hanging out in Austin. Right? Holy <laughs> shit. I had no idea. That's really cool. How did you uh, how did you first get into kind of the philosophy theory realm like what what age did you stumble in that world you know I was always pretty interested in that kind of stuff um, you know I was always really interested in, in in Plato and a lot of the Greek philosophy honestly a lot of it came out of I used to love the game civilization as a kid and I was always interested in the different forms of government um, so pretty early on in high school I was in reading things like uh, uh, you know, Jean Locke and, and Plato and stuff like that, at least, uh, you know, very surface level, but I was interested in it. Um, and then I started reading, you know, the Communist Manifesto and a lot of socialist texts, especially toward my senior year of high school. And that really just opened up a huge door for me, um, especially when I went to American University. I was really lucky. Most of uh, uh, philosophy departments in the U.S. are uh, analytic, um, but American is actually pretty rare because it's continental. And continental philosophy is going to be more like, you know, French theory, um, a little bit less like working through like logical proofs and it's like can be a little bit more literary and in my opinion a lot more interesting and yeah. radical. Oh, I agree. So I was pretty lucky to just sort of stumble into this very radical philosophy department at American University. Um, I had some incredible professors. Uh, I had a professor, Farhang Irfani, uh, who is really influential in the post-colonial philosophy, but it's also just a good Marxist um, and, and really interesting uh, Iranian uh, philosopher as well. And, you know, he definitely... His reading lists are something that I still keep and I still revisit all the time. So I was very lucky to just, and I had no idea. I was like an idiot redneck kid from South Carolina oh, moving yeah. up to DC. I mean, and I just, basically yeah. the same shit for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was something that was really interesting. And then obviously, uh, Occupy was really important too because people were really introducing a lot of different texts and ideas that I wasn't familiar with. So, what a, who's your jam? Like, give me kind of who are your kind of top maybe three or four. Yeah, you well, really enjoy. you know, somebody who I don't read uh, too much anymore was really important for me was uh, Rousseau. Uh, Rousseau really was what started my uh, my Marxist journey for me because his criticism of property rights really just changed my perspective because you started to realize how arbitrary a system that we were yeah. creating. And Rousseau has this, you know, argument about how we've created an artificial force that kills people. And he uses like this kind of thought experiment where imagine there's somebody who's completely able-bodied, but they're an honorable person. They don't want to break the law and they're starving. They could starve right outside of an apple orchard. 
but they wouldn't want to eat the, the apple from someone else's farm because they didn't own it. Yeah. And just realizing how stupid and ridiculous of a way, um, the, the, the way that we organize our society, you know, really has massive effects. And then from there, you know, I moved on to, to Marx, who is and continues to be um, very influential um, for me, obviously, I I very much have returned to Marx over everybody. I did go through a lot of, uh, you know, post-structural theory. I was really into Lacan for a long time. But more and more, I've just been returning to a lot more political economy, a lot of Marx. Um, I've been reading a lot of Gramsci recently. Um, I've also been reading uh, Nikos Polansis. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he's very interesting. Um, kind of uh, ex-Leninist who became a democratic socialist. And I've been sort of reading about that, because I still consider myself more of a, a communist than a democratic socialist, only because uh, I'm not always sure philosophically what people mean by that. Um, and I definitely throw my weight in, at least historically, in with uh, you know, the communist movement. Um, you know, not, not uh, obviously looking over like the horrors and the massive mistakes, but when I see people in, uh, you know, in India like calling themselves communists, I see like, those are my friends and those are my comrades, and I sort of sit, try to situate myself. Um, in that in that movement, so yeah, um, you know, reading people like Polanzas has been really interesting in trying to find a kind of articulation for what democratic socialism means. Um, but it's also interesting because I feel like Polanzas is very divorced from the current movement as well. I don't think people who call themselves democratic socialists necessarily read a bunch of Polanzas and now you know join the DSA. Right. Yeah. Um, I'm not, so I'm not even that yeah. familiar with. Uh, I honestly, from outside the the Michael Brooks show TMBS I'm not I've never even heard that name there may be one friend I've got has mentioned yeah. before but that's it yeah I mean he's definitely somebody uh who's who's becoming very popular now a lot of people are reading his books I mean you know absolutely fascinating fascinating guy but then also you know I read a lot of Sartre um who I just love even though he has a really bad readings to a lot of the philosophers that he works with I sort of like that idea of freedom of just interpreting it someone else's philosophy however the hell you want <laughs> And yeah, so I mean, I definitely have a little bit of that uh, French absurd tradition in me as well. Definitely. I've, you know, I really was only exposed to primarily Foucault and Derrida in my, mm -hmm. my undergrad. And so I had only, and really hadn't heard much about Lacan, but now I'm, I've been fascinated. The last year or so, Lacan has been big on my mind and like the th yeah. theory of desire and object Absolutely. PTA and all that kind of shit. But I still, you know, <laughs> it's like so difficult to parse through. Well, it's going to change the way that you watch advertisements, right? <laughs> um, you know, talking about desire. And I mean, I like I like Lacan. I like theories that really like decenter um, truth and certainty a lot. I think that's something that can be very important. And I've gotten into fights with people because I'm not even particularly Lacanian anymore. But there's a lot of really cheap criticisms of Lacan. Some guy was coming at me about like Lacan, like doesn't understand mathematics. And, you know, you, you look at somebody like that and you realize that they really aren't understanding why Lacan is using, you know, mathematics principles in the first place. He's not making an argument like, oh, this is proven through mathematics. He's using it as a metaphor to try to talk about the unconscious and try to traverse something that's very difficult to, to, to understand as, a, you know, an individual. Um, so Lacan is definitely somebody who's absolutely fascinating. Lacanian... Uh, Marxism is a sort of different beast and can get a little funky, I think. But, uh, you know, like kind of Zizekian okay. on political philosophy. And I like Zizek, uh, you know, enough, but you start to wonder what is the political project right. behind that a lot of times. Yeah, and I think that's the big question, uh, like we were talking about for post-structuralist thought, which is more, I don't know, that's kind of really more so what drove me kind of down the, 
the anarchist vein more so mm-hmm. than like Marxism specifically, although definitely got mad respect for Marx's political economy and that critique. And I would even say like, I don't you know, I don't know if I would say that I'm a libertarian Marxist, but that's that's in the stew, you know what I mean? Mm. That sort of thing. Mm. So it's definitely something I'm open to, but I really, I haven't even read Marx to be honest. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, there's a lot obviously um, with Marx and he has a lot of different uh, texts and also went through significant changes in his philosophy. Um, there's a real split between young Marx and old Marx. Young Marx was very like idealist and definitely was coming out of a kind of German idealist tradition. But there's a pretty radical um, break that you sort of see in Marx. That's like the later, more mature Marx. That that's like capital. Um, that's you know critique of the Gothic program. That's um, 18th uh, 18th Brumaire, which is a phenomenal text. If you're only going to read one uh, Marxist text, that might be one that's definitely worth reading because there you really start to understand Marx's uh, political philosophy. And his idea of history a lot better than you're going to get secondhand, because a lot of people find or like mistake Marx and think that he's a determinist. Um, he absolutely is not. Um, he's very clear. He has a great uh, he has a great line in the 18th Brumaire. He's like, men make their own history, but they do not do so um, on their own terms. So it's that like, yes, we're all free individuals, and we make our own choices, and they could be good or bad, and like they are going to have their effects. But also the the table's already set, and like you know, there's going to be certain things that are going to be carried into uh, any kind of political movement that you don't anticipate. And that's definitely, for example, the case in in Russia, right? Where it's like you have a very backwards, uh, you know, fairly like right wing uh, reactionary society, and then you try to implement, uh, you know, socialism there. And you had a lot of the very specific conditions um, that are unique to the Russian experience. So it's not, you know, it's not this idea that like, oh, if, you know, you just read Capital, then you're going to be able to create, you know, utopian society all on its own, right? It's like there's all sorts of political struggles that are outside of the economic realm. And Marx is very clear about that, actually. And I feel like it's unfortunate a lot of people um, don't recognize that in Marx's work. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned, I mean, that specific quote, actually, so my very... Last episode, I have uh, there's a friend of mine that lives here in Austin that's in the DSA, more mm-hmm. of kind of an orthodox classical Marxist, and uh, we we did uh, read this piece by Mario Kutahar, the crisis mm-hmm. of dialect- dialectical materialism and libertarian socialism. Really great read, and it's funny because it was like pretty much exactly what you were just talking about. I mean, it literally mm-hmm. the piece starts off with that quote from the 18th Brumaire. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. That's perfect. Then, I mean, that, that's the thing about Marx too. Um, you know, just if we're talking about it, uh, a lot of people also think that Marx, for example, like you know, invented socialism or the communist movement. That's actually not the case at all. What Marx saw was he saw a very important radical movement um, that you know was really inspiring a lot of people, but in political practice was very sloppy and very utopian and very ineffective. And what Marx's contribution. Um, to uh, to socialism and communism really is, in my opinion, was that he implemented a bit of theoretical discipline into the movement that didn't exist before. Um, and you could see that a lot w- with the way that a lot of these left movements are developing now, right? People have like really good intentions, um, but then you start to ask them, it's like, okay, so what are we going to do? How are we going to create the society? What's our political practice? What's our short-term program? And they get lost very quickly because they're so focused on the end demands that what we're doing right now in developing any kind of political organization that can start to implement these changes that we want to see in society, you know, you can get really lost really quickly. So having a little bit more of a materialist uh, theoretical approach can allow you to um, 
you know, to achieve, uh, you know, your goals a lot better. I think, uh, for example, Bernie Sanders' speech, I don't know if you saw it or listened to it on democratic socialism um, that he gave a, a week ago. I, ha- I have was not, really, no. It's really interesting because what he's doing is he's saying, look, I'm trying to push for, you know, universal health care. I'm trying to push for, you know, these kind of like smaller, more easy demands to wrap your head around. But there's a double move there, and a lot of people miss this. He says, because if we start to pull out health from the from being a, commo- a commodity and to just treat it as something that is just a social service that we're providing for everybody, that's going to fundamentally weaken a lot of the power that the capitalist class has over our life. So it's like having these double moves is something that's really important in politics and I think is a very Marxist way of looking at politics. Where it's not, because people always get pissed about Bernie because, you know, Bernie's not saying like, all right, you know, all power to the Soviets, you know, let's have like an armed insurrection. Round up but all the landlords <laughs> and execute them. That's, that's pretty good. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's like obviously that wouldn't be successful. There's people who do that shit all the time and that never catches any traction, right? Um, So being able to understand how like you can build a political organization and build, you know, certain short-term demands, but also, and it's very important that you don't get lost in the short-term demands, but also being very clear about, okay, well, this is because this is a step to create uh, this. And that's very much a part of like the, the Marxist tradition, even the Leninist tradition. If you read Lenin from like 1900 to 1917, it's very interesting to, to see actually a lot of the political debates that we're having are mirrored in yeah. that period of time because Lenin was always uh, he wrote a uh, he wrote a pamphlet once called left-wing communism and infantile disorder <laughs> <laughs> you know when he's railing against these people who like refuse to participate in important political movements in, in Russia that eventually and Lenin was correct that eventually led to a rupture and a revolutionary moment. Um, and I think you know, learning from those experiences is something that's very important um, for us to do, especially anybody who's interested in political strategy. Yeah, um, yeah, I'm kind of divorced for myself, sort of from the electoral politics. I don't pay a, a lot of attention, mm-hmm. and I mean, maybe that's the drawback to sort of like, and I'm trying to maybe feel out what real anarchist praxis looks like. Mm-hmm. And I do, and I think Michael makes a good point too on the show about like, yeah, we can, at the margins of society, like it does matter whom gets elected, you know, ultimately. So I'm not one of those people that doesn't, that says Mm -hmm. don't vote or, you know, tries to say that voting is supporting imperialism or anything like that. But -hmm. it's like long-term wise, yeah, maybe in the short term, like let's help out the people that we can with some type of reform. But ultimately, we're not going to be able to reform the state you know the bourgeois state's going to serve its own ends it's got to be destroyed from without rather than within and figuring out how to build that movement Mm -hmm. no i mean i think it's definitely you know again this is something at least within the dsa that is something that's debated very regularly and i'm always uh, um, surprised because i do have a worry too sometimes that you know these movements will just become co-opted by not just an electoralism but just will become so systematized that they will cease to be, you know, radical political movements and just sort of be like more of a special interest group for, you know, certain social democratic demands, which are very important, right? Uh, you know, getting universal health care is massively important, but not having the kind of more radical socialist revolutionary bent to it. But I will say, and, and quite happily, that at least within the DSA, I think most people recognize, for example, that you know the Democratic Party is the graveyard of many social movements and the real success I think that we've seen with the DSA is that they're using that party as an instrument rather than as a home. 
right? So it's something that we can use because the way that we set up our elections in the United States is so rigged that you can't really success, be successful on the ballot without participating in the two-party system. That, okay, if the, that's going to be the case, they have this really open and loose party formation. And if we can use that and co-op that um, to be able to get, I mean, so like in New York, Julia Salazar, who we just put on the New York State Senate, um, huge victory over a very like long-term entrenched Democratic politician. She's only been in the Senate for you know less than a year now, and was able to push a massive rent law reform um, in in New York State, which was huge uh, for a lot of people. Really increasing rent stabilization, increasing rights and protections for tenants, etc. Not only is she doing that, but she was, did an interview um, with one of the real estate publications, and she was saying that I don't think that housing should be a commodity, right? So it's like these are the ways, at least in the practice of the, the DSA so far, that a lot of people have been able, I think, um, to find that double move where they're not getting lost in electoral politics. I do think it's easy, and especially you know, since I, I work in, in political media, it is easy sometimes to fit, pay too much attention um, to whatever election's coming up um, and you know what's going on with politicians because that's so much what our media has traditionally focused on. Um, but I don't think strategically that's necessarily what's going on. I think that's a good thing. I mean, yeah, I think it's, it's encouraging to see the DSA kind of get more popular and get some, you know, achieve some victories, at least as like some type of move left. Mm hmm. But yeah, I mean, it's fraud. I mean, it's dangerous. And, you know, I think I think uh, I'm a big you know supporter of Bernie. I think getting him elected is something really exciting that we can do. Not not even so much for what he'll be able to do as president, but because of what it's done for left po politics in the United States just in the past four years. Um, but, you know, I think at, at a certain point, people do need to, you know, uh, dissuade themselves of this idea that, you know, Bernie Sanders is going to be able to become president. And then, I mean, you know, the uh, the presidency for for the most part is like the symbolic office of the of the bourgeoisie and there's a lot of significant limitations um to what we'll be able to do in power and i think being prepared for that moment is something that a lot of people something that people need to be thinking about a lot more as we're working on this so that we don't get caught into a trap where if bernie you know it becomes president, but he's not able to pass all the things that we want to pass that we just don't all become, uh, you know, we give up on politics basically. Um, because, you know, it's something that's very light, uh, lucky. I mean, likely, uh, there's entire state apparatus, which is very much geared to protecting capital. And it's very much going to be, um, an open rebellion against, um, any kind of more radical changes. At the same time though, I think it's important to recognize that the state the state isn't necessarily um, a reflection of the bourgeoisie in the sense that the state is actually a very different entity. The state does have the interests of the bourgeoisie in mind, but I would argue more in the long-term goals of the bourgeoisie, yeah. right? So it's like the state is not going to intervene in any kind of uh, you know bankruptcy case, for example, for large capitals. But as we saw in 2008, you know, the financial crisis, they were more than happy to provide that uh, that money to prop up the system. So I think it's important though to recognize that there's a, a double move that the state is playing too and it's not necessarily just the mouthpiece or the organ of, of the capitalist class. Yeah. I actually think that they're two very different structures and understanding that's really important I think as we strategize. Yeah, and I think there's, yeah, there's like a rupture in that it's not unified, the bourgeoisie is not unified. Yeah, absolutely. Necessarily, but you're right, the trajectory 
is in the same direction. Because well, I, I guess the reason I bring that up is because we can abstract ourselves into in an action, basically. Yeah, true. Right? right. If we're like, you know, if we're like, there's this united bourgeoisie that controls the, you know, like the economy and the state, um, then it's like, okay, well, we're fucked, right? Um, if we can recognize, actually, like, yes, they have an interest and they're pushing society in a certain direction, but it's not unified. It's not necessarily orchestrated by a few people. It's a lot of, you know, individual interests who are acting in a certain ways, one, through because of ideology, um, and two, you know, out of self-preservation. <laughs> so we talked a little bit about Marx and, and young Marx. So I'm, I'm kind of curious, what, uh, have, you ever, have you ever fucked with uh, Max Stirner? Um, not too, not too much, much. Uh, to be honest. I mean, I've, I'm familiar with it a little bit, but uh, uh, I, I never really got into that that movement. For me, um, politically, I, I just found that the the socialists and the communists were doing uh, much more interesting stuff than the anarchists were when I was organizing an Occupy. Um, you know, I think you know Occupy was a really interesting, and I know it's a little different than than Stirner, obviously too. Because uh, Amer- like American anarchism is really fascinating that it's been such a popular movement in the United States as like a radical movement for a long time, um, well, at least a little bit more popular, I would say, for a while than like the socialist movement yeah. for, for a very long time. Uh, I do think it's starting to shift because there were a lot of issues uh, with that kind of organizing in, in Occupy. I, I don't know if you were participating in it or, or witnessed it firsthand. But just meetings on meetings to decide what we would be able to discuss in the General Assembly at the end of the day, right? You know, there were some some issues between the kind of idealist goal of like a completely flat system of organizing and the actual like material reality, which is that we had a shitload of people in a park and we needed to figure out how to move people and, you know, to do stuff and like everybody arguing constantly and not having a proper structure created a lot of issues. So for me... Um, and you know, this might be a mistake on my part, but for me, I w- I've always been more interested or at least drawn toward, um, you know, more socialist and Marxist ways of organizing politically because of that. I think that's a fair criticism. And, uh, in my last episode, we even talked about that too. It's like, you don't, you haven't seen a lot of anarchist movements. You've mostly seen, you know, ML groups throughout, hit, mm-hmm. you know, over the course of the last 30, 40 years have been the ones conducting revolutionary activity in large part. But I don't know. I'm just I'm very uh, skeptical of any any state apparatus. I, I don't know that I'll ever get off that mm. get off that kind of fear. Um, and I do. I mean, I understand. I like the. I, I'm sympathetic to the orientation, at least. Right. <laughs> I'm sympathetic. I think it's important to have people, um, and I, I share that at least. It's like I am always worried about somebody who wants to be in power. Right. right? Yeah, I always exactly. treat that with a significant amount of skepticism. <laughs> and I think too, even like, you know, Bookchin would say, I mean, there's, I think there's a libertarian spirit in the American character and it's a unique spirit. And I think tapping into that and making people realize that, you know, there's, there's more to freedom than just, you know, this, opening their eyes to how the, basically the private state, right? Capitalism. Mm-hmm is a threat to their liberty just as much as an oppressive bourgeois state can be. Oh, know? absolutely. I mean, have you ever read, um, you know, if, if you ever read Sartre, I mean, a lot of his p- political work and philosophical work is all about the question of freedom. Um, and it's, it's fundamental, uh, actually, to, the, um, uh, to, to Sartre's political philosophy. Um, his book, Search for a Method, is a very interesting book where he tries to uh, um, articulate 
the philosophy of existentialism, and existentialism fundamentally is a philosophy of freedom, right? Um, with the communist and Marxist movements that he was a part of in France, the revolution movements in the 50s and 60s, which, you know, eventually uh, ended up failing, at least in the French case, but were very, you know, inspiring and looked to be something that was going to develop. Um, you know, I mean, it was, uh, France always seemed much more likely to have like a socialist revolution than Russia did um, for a lot of reasons. But anyways, uh, Sartre's argument about uh, existentialism is very interesting in that like he finds existentialism to be a philosophy that, a philosophy of like anticipation. So it's like existentialism is the philosophy of, of communism in practice. Wherein like if we were in a communist society, you know, in the sense of like what Marx talks about when he talks about, you know, I'm sorry, Engels uh, talking about the state withering away, right? Uh, that's very much what Sartre was talking about, but you have to be able to break a kind of social relation that is always going to prevent people from, from being free by its very nature. Um, I don't know if you've read Oscar Wilde before, um, but he has a great essay called The Soul of Man Under Socialism, which I think you might like a lot. It's where he declares himself a libertarian socialist. And he talks about the tyranny of living for others, which is a very interesting concept. And by that, he means under capitalism, we're forced to live for everybody else because we're forced and compelled to sell our labor um, you know, for the entirety of, of society. And it's not necessarily a choice. It's compelled. And... Oscar Wilde was very much, and this socialism is very utopian, um, but at least philosophically I find it to be a very interesting idea where he says under socialism that's where we can truly be free because this false, um, what, you know, this false uh, coercion that we just accept as something that's normal, right, would be, we could get rid of that and then we could actually be free as individuals to relate with each other as human beings rather than, you know, class differences and all these other issues, social relation issues. That's very much, that's kind of really what Sterner's whole vibe is too, is, yeah. is very similar. Um, and I'm sure, I don't know how familiar, like there's all the memes about Sterner and the spooks, but he's basically, he's almost like this proto post-structuralist and kind of like saying, okay, all these metaphysical categories are kind of bullshit and made up. They're just mm -hmm. ideas. They're not real. They're controlling you and they're constraining you. And like even the concept of the human being is a, is limiting your potential to become something, which I think is super it's, fascinating uh, to me. No, it definitely is fascinating. And I, I'm sure you were talking about this when you're talking about Lacan. Um, but this is something that's interesting about uh, Lacan. At least if I feel like people first read Lacan, they have this idea that like, oh, I need to escape the symbolic, right? And I need to get out of, uh, you know, being, you know, having my life structured by a language. And, you know, Lacanians will tell you, it's like, actually, no, that would be a disaster, right? If, like, if you were unable to, to communicate or if you, like, we would be impossible, it'd be impossible, like, there is no, like, truth on the other side either. Yeah. And I think that's something that's really important because a lot of people sort of, like, create this and it's like a, not necessarily Buddhism, but it's the kind of, like, bad reading of Buddhism, right? right? Where it's like political philosophy, you know, philosophy in general is, like, going to lead us to, like, this kind of enlightened state where we realize that, like, all these things are, are made up and it's like, well, yeah, they're made up, but they're made up for a reason. And the real question that we should be asking is like, does this serve a positive purpose right. or does this serve a purpose to keep us, um, you know, down? Because obviously we wouldn't want to at, at age zero, right? Everyone has to create their own language, right? <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? That'd be a nightmare. So it's like, you know, we need to have something that is imported and, you know, that means that it's going to have the scars and the horrors and all these things from past generations, right? Um, 
but understanding the critique of things that are socially constructed that doesn't get us into a place where we don't want to engage with anything because it's socially constructed, I think is something that's really important. I think too many people fall into that trap of just realizing, oh, shit's socially constructed, so therefore it's bad. It's like, well, that's not necessarily the case, in my opinion, at least. Right. Yeah, I think that, I don't know, it feels like there's a, I don't know, people tend to kind of just fall into those grooves that we set for ourselves with these sort of metaphysical ideas or categories. And that I think is, is more so the danger than anything is like getting, a, you know, really like it gets lost. Like the original intent is completely lost and so abstracted. And then it just becomes, you know, it just comes this repetitious pattern of repeating the same behaviors because, Oh, it's, well, it's, that's just the way it is. You know what I mean? That sort of thing. Yeah. And I think no, that's more so the, danger and criticism and skepticism that I want to bring to the table or Mm -hmm. kind of have people think about. But I definitely have joked about, please remove me from the symbolic order. I've made that that post a few times. Of course. (laughs) You know, we also don't want to be castrated (laughs) either and lose ourselves, right? So... Um, no, I mean, but it's like I think, but you know, that's what I'm saying is like there's a synthesis actually between those those two ideas of dialectic, even yeah. right between like recognizing that th- that things are socially constructed and then saying, oh, I'm gonna you know I'm gonna go off into the woods and be free of of society, right? Which I think would be an extreme you know decision. But then also what the conservatives do, what the conservative philosophy does is like, well, things are the way they are because that's the right way that they should, you know, that's the way that they need to be, right? And that's absolutely incorrect. So it's like finding the synthesis actually between those two ideas is, I think, the more radical and fundamentally more interesting project too. Definitely. Um, Shit, what was I going to ask you? Oh, no, I was going to say, so uh, probably it's in my episode coming out on Monday. So I'll probably have actually this will launch like the following Monday. So I had a friend of mine, um, John Zichterman, and so we did a couple of articles. One was... Sterner and Deleuze on anarchism and then a companion piece on Lacan that I'm Mm -hmm. releasing on Monday that I think would be a pretty interesting listen because we kind of are discussing this kind of same shit and trying to figure out (laughs) that same sort of thing. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. And then I think it was funny too because I even made the point there that with Sterner with his spooks is the spooks are almost, or wait, no, Lacan with desire Desire being a sort of a spook in itself, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, it's absolutely, I mean, that's, that's the moment, I think, when you read Lacan is you realize you don't want what the, you think you want and that you realize that satisfaction in that way is always going to be um, impossible. There's a moment there where uh, I feel like at least the first time I came across Lacan, I was like, holy shit, <laughs> you know, like I'm very much, you know, my mind was wrong. But then you get into this weird moment. It's like, well, it's like, well, can I enjoy, you know, this activity? Like, can I enjoy like this video game or whatever? Or do I have to treat it as like a a dream in itself, right? Because does that liberate me in any way? Um, And I don't think that that's necessarily the case either. I mean, I don't know. It's like understanding the role of, of desire in politics does get really interesting because you realize how irrational a lot of our political behaviors are too. I think Trump's a great example of like a real kind of desire-based politics for a certain group of people. And like it definitely plays into a lot of fascist. Um, it's very easy for fascism to use this impossibility of what Trump is trying to sell to people, for example. Um, we can all re- you know hear that what he's promising his voters is not something that he could even really put into practice. But just signaling to like that desire for people is very motivating for a lot of people politically. Yeah. Um, and trying to find a way to create a proper 
left desire, I think, is something that we really need to be focusing on a little bit more. I think the left is often way too doom and gloom. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Alexander Coburn, uh, but he was a really great radical writer and journalist in the U.S. He founded Counterpunch um, with Jeffrey St. Clair. And he was always on you know, a need for a kind of more optimism in left politics because if you go to a left-wing meeting, it's just like, <laughs> right? yeah. you know, it's like the fascists are in power and we're, st- you know, we're in a system of wage slavery and, you know, uh, you know, the U.S. imperial machine continues to rove and win victory after victory. You know, it's like, join the Communist Party. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it's like, okay, you know, <laughs> that doesn't sound like fun. Um, so I think like having a little bit of um, more optimistic and happy, you know, having a kind of utopia, I think is important. Having a politics of a bit more optimism, I think is something that we really need to reclaim and develop a little bit better on the left in the U.S. Because as you were talking about, you think, talking about the uh, individualism of, of the U.S., um, I also think that culturally, you know, we do have an optimistic bent to us. And I think trying to tap into that is something that we definitely need to be um, creating. It's very exciting to be participating in left movements right now um, in the U.S. just because I'm excited to see the kind of form that left socialism um, and left, you know, Marxist theory is able to develop over the next few years um, just to see at least culturally the kind of bent that it will take to these ideas. I think that uh, the concept of a left desire is really fascinating to me and to me maybe i think maybe you just articulated why lacan has been so fascinating to me is because i think Mm -hmm. there is that psychoanalytic element to this whole fascist thing right Mm -hmm. there's there's something there Mm -hmm. i can't quite parse it out but there's something weird that i don't think that theory any other theory is really getting at that kind of in like inside your like the subjective experience Mm -hmm as opposed to like a Marxist critique or what have you, that really doesn't delve with the inner individual so much. Yeah, and I think that's where, that's where I mean, that's why, like, for example, psychoanalytic Marxism, even before Lacan, um, you know, so we're talking about like Adorno, Benjamin, um, all the, you know, the Frankfurt School, was trying to have the synthesis between like these two radical ideas. Marx was the incredible, you know, criticism of political economy. And then starting with Freud, it's just the criticism of thinking that you understand your own mind at all. Um, and trying to find a synthesis between those two, I think theoretically, um, there's a, I think there's a lot of people who do interesting work on this subject. I think Jody Dean is a really good Lacanian um, Marxist who writes, you know, writes a lot about, um, you know, de- desire and the way that it, it, it uh, um, affects politics and, uh, of course, like many other subjects. I, I think... The tension really is how do you implement any kind of psychoanalytic understanding into a political movement? Um, I mean, political education obviously can be a part of that, but uh, I'm not 100% sure, at least, I mean, other than, I guess, strategizing with that in mind. But I think it's, it's definitely, it's just the reason that I've sort of veered away from it in recent years is that I just wonder how much it, it, can affect mass movements versus me as an individual because it might help me understand myself and understand politics a little bit better as an individual. But I wonder sort of as part of mass movement, what its role is. Agreed. And I think I'm, that's something I'm kind of toying with or trying to really understand. Like I said earlier, what, like, what is, what does my praxis really look like and Mm -hmm. how does, you know what I mean? Just even trying to figure out where, where that lies, you know what I mean? Absolutely. 
but I, I don't know how much how much time do you think you have left? I'm just kind of curious. I have a couple minutes. I think I need to head out around okay, two, cool. two or five. Or All right. So. Well, uh, I mean, I guess that's probably well, that makes a decent place to wrap things up. So I'll let you go ahead if you want to plug your social media, any projects, the show, the TM, TMBS, whatever. Go right ahead. Yeah, absolutely. I'm at Twitter at David Griscom. Um, you can read my writing on my website, which is the Synthome. <laughs> Uh, a good Lacanian term, so t h e s i n t h o m e dot com, and um, also you know, check out the Michael Brooks show if you don't already listen. And uh, as far as we go, please support us on Patreon if you're willing at uh, patreon dot com forward slash podcast c o cooper cherry. Uh, check out the uh, podcast Twitter feed at podcast c o cooper, and uh, even check out our memes on Instagram at podcast underscore c o underscore cooper underscore cherry but david i really appreciate you helping out a fellow texan and come on the show oh man i loved it man thanks so much that was a great time man i was so uh so glad you were willing and responded this was really fun and hey man i'll have to come up to brooklyn sometime and grab a grab a drink or something yeah hell yeah but all right all right my man all right i'll uh this is a podcast care of cooper cherry signing off for the week cheers